0: Greetings to all of you listening to this message, which is being given on August the 4th, 2014, on Monday at approximately 8.21 in the evening. My name is David Thompson. I am here to minister the word of God as the oracles of God, as God's word commands us, to seek to minister as the oracles of God. Today, in that pursuit, Through the casting of lots, I was led to 1 Timothy chapter one. I do not know what God would say from this passage. I've only meditated and written notes on it for a half hour. And it seems to me one of the more harder passages of scripture to receive anything from. But I pray right now and ask in the name of Jesus Christ unto God, our Father, for your anointing and utterance, and that you would guide us into all truth. And I thank you for what you will do. Because I know that God is wanting to speak to me personally and to the body of Christ, something that is very relevant from this passage of scripture. I will begin by reading the full chapter of First Timothy, chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the face, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, and thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying witches in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith on vain, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. For manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust and i thank christ jesus our lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me in to the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but i obtained mercy because i did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, albeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee that thou, I them, mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwrecked. Of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. <clears throat> Just going to take a drink of water here. Very hot day today. In the first part of 1 Timothy, from verses 1 to 4, Paul the Apostle is addressing Timothy for the ministry that he is to engage in. And he emphasizes his authority in the Lord, that he is an apostle by the commandment of God, who is our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ which is our hope. And he proclaims to Timothy three things, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This word grace and mercy are reflected more particularly than peace in fact, they are the only two words that are repeated a number of times throughout this chapter. I have often in my teaching not made a difference between the word grace and mercy and have equivi- equiviated the terminology of the word grace in the New Testament scriptures with the terminology of the word mercy in the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm sure if I did a further study on this, I would discover that that was probably very much the case, that there is a very similar, if not completely, uh, conformed definition between the word mercy and grace. But there is a difference, obviously, used in the English language here and in the Greek. And... I just want to point out this difference first, before I go into the various emphases that are in this passage of scripture on particularly grace, but also mercy. And so when we discover the word mercy in the New Testament, we find that it comes from a Greek word, helios, which means compassion. when one considers the various verses that are used in the New Testament with this Greek word, it becomes evident that it is an outward manifestation. Oh, pardon me, I'm speaking of mercy here, unfortunately. I misread for a moment there. So what I'm talking about when I use the word eleos is not the word grace. It's the word, and I should know that, it's the word Mercy, that's the word used in the New Testament for the word mercy, and its root meaning is basically that of compassion. So we'll describe mercy first here. The New Testament vine says that it is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. God is merciful to those who fear Him, it says in Luke 150, for example. And there are many verses that emphasize mercy. Mercy has the understanding of deserved judgment that is serious and greatly deserved being removed from the recipient by God who has the power to forgive and God alone has the power to forgive. Elohim, the Almighty's Ones, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit of God in Omnipresence. The reason it's only in God that there is the power to show mercy and thus to be able to forgive as opposed to the recipient receiving judgment is because it is only possible that God could absorb the judgment of the whole creation because that, especially for someone like man, would require a perfect substitute. That's why there are verses in the Old Testament that say things like, even if one gave their body for the sin of their soul, it would not be sufficient. And why it emphasizes, a body thou hast prepared me. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written, I delight to do thy will, a body thou hast prepared me. Speaking of the Messiah coming to be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Yes, they recognized from the very time of Adam and Eve that forgiveness was only in God. It's clear in many scriptures in the Old Testament. They also recognized that the atoning sacrifice that God said that they should offer was an act on their part of attributing their sin onto that animal, but in a symbolic way, because they always knew that the source of forgiveness was in God. But they recognized that their response and the representation of that animal was a representation of the cleansing of the physical realm, but could not represent their soul and spirit as a substitute, but only could purify the flesh. This is why it says in the New Testament, the sacrifice of animals only is able to purify the flesh. But the purification of the flesh allows the spirit of God to dwell with one's spirit and soul in the time before Christ and to indwell because the spirit and soul is cleansed through the perfect atoning sacrifice of God himself in Christ. So there's the indwelling after Christ and the dwelling with before. Now I can get into great in depth on this, but I'm just wanting to emphasize and not get sidetracked on teachings here. I want to emphasize that the mercy of God that is emphasized so much in the Old Testament, there are psalms that keep on saying the mercy of the lord endureth forever let israel now say and then it goes on and repeats various statements revealing god's mercy in many dimensions and aspects the mercy of god is only possible in the light of god's holiness or from the foundation of god's holiness god's holiness is the integrity of God's love that will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to his love. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought or deed that would be contrary to God's being of love. This is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of fulfillment that would be less than the best onto the highest good. Who is God? And this quality of love is totally self-originating and creative and is ever-expanding in creativity because it has this foundation of integrity and it has a blazing fire of judgment in its love. It is the holiness of God, the defensive aspect of its love. And it is the mercy of God that is revealed from the very time of Adam and Eve. In a way of crudely illustrating this with modern terminology, God is first the ultimate negative, which is really an ultimate positive. You can look at the negative as a symbol because it's horizontal, the foundation. It is the perfect foundation, the immovable rock of reality, because this quality of being will not allow the slightest iota of corruption it therefore can contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted or dissipated by or causing that life and unlimited power to be dissipated this also is indicative that god is the very source of life and of ultimate power and of course therein of ultimate goodness because love is always choosing what is of ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment which is goodness and so we have the mercy of God that is issued, that transcends out of the foundation of God's holiness. His creativity comes, this creativity of love issues out of the foundation of his integrity of love and springs forth in its ultimate manifestation in the prov- power to provide destiny and purpose to what he creates. Because He can create free-willed, self-originating beings that are the source of their own action and self-responsible and guilty of their own disobedience. But he can provide forgiveness. And his goal is that all things would be reconciled unto himself. Seems like a lot of detail to get in on this passage of scripture. But I want to give a clear understanding of mercy. And here in the New Testament, there is... A difference between the word grace and mercy. And so now we want to look at the word grace in the New Testament. To understand that difference. Because really it is slight in many ways. But here's what we have for the word grace in the New Testament. And again, I'm not an expert but it's kaharasi kaharasi, kaharis, I don't know. It's around that pronunciation. And its first understanding is graciousness in the sense of being gratifying of a manner or an act. An act that is gracious. It is particularly emphasized in relation to divine influence upon the heart. to have that influence go in the direction of goodness as opposed to a destructive principle of rebellion. Thirdly, has the understanding of gratitude as you look at the various scriptures in the New Testament. The New Testament vines says that the objective is that which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or causes favorable regard. It is applied... For example, to beauty or to gracefulness of a person, such as speech and so on. To be in favor with is to find grace with. So here we have grace being differentiated from mercy, which is more or less the manifestation of compassion in the sense of receiving forgiveness when one deserves judgment grace has more a positive sense in it of favor that is not just providing mercy or forgiveness but going beyond that to bring goodness the deposit of goodness and blessing in the recipient And so that is the difference. And here in this passage, Paul addresses Timothy with a desire for him to know God's favor, that is his grace, and to know his mercy, that is his forgiveness, his cancellation of judgment where there could be judgment and to know the peace that also issues out of this intimate relationship with God. And he's giving a charge to Timothy in this passage against to charge people under his pastor or bishopric, or of his shepherding of the flock, to not teach doctrines that get people puffed up in pride through discussing things that cause them to get into conspiracy theories or fables we have many believers nowadays getting carried away with conspiracy theories which misrepresents christ because it is not a testimony to the world when people believe things that are not substantiated in reality and that tend to make them look like they are delusional and believing things that aren't real and in many of these cases these people fail to try things with the fire of truth And there's an element of pride behind the delight in these things. That we know something that others don't. And so instead of there being godliness, which edifies, there tends out of the root of pride to come contention. That is what it says in Proverbs. That contention comes by pride. Division, therefore, also comes by pride. And the root of that is teachings that are not unto godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is conformity unto being like God. That is conformity to his being of love. His being of love that has such integrity that it hates all that is contrary to love, has a blazing fire of judgment that will utterly consume and destroy it. It will never, God's love will never condone what is contrary to his love. In other words, it's a hate for unrighteousness, that which is not right, that which is filled with corruption and destruction in it. And it is a love for righteousness, Or a love for that which is always a choice and a quality that can be imbued into people's being that is in the direction of ultimate meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And is conquering the principles of corruption and destructiveness within our being. So that we come to the place where it is completely subdued. The doctrine of godliness is focused on intimacy with God out of awareness of the holiness of God that brings the awareness of the mercy of God and the greatness of his mercy to us. that that out of that causes us to be in such awe that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and out of that become so soft and tender in our hearts that we become receptive to the favor of God or the grace of God that comes and issues out of the mercy of God. And so we receive, and that is the way we receive Christ. Genuine belief is a belief from the heart. It is a moral persuasion. In the New Testament, the Greek word for belief and faith is pistis. or relate, that, that, There's that word pistis for belief and the, a related word that is the same word for faith. And it means persuasion. To be fully persuaded from our inner being so that we are moved out of that persuasion to exercise our spirit and our being in the confession of our mouth and then in carrying it out in our life. For the heart of man believes unto righteousness, and as a result of it, confession is made unto salvation. It's the persuasion that brings the change in the heart to reach out. And in this case, it is the recognition. It is when we choose to fear God that we recognize The perfection of God's holiness and that the judgments we see around us are not to be attributed to God. For God is light and in him is no darkness, but rather the consequences of being cut off from God due to rebellion. And recognizing the goodness of God that is behind the holiness of God that is transcendent and is the foundation for transcendence in the power to provide mercy and destination to his creation. Without God being able to provide destination and purpose to creation, it would imply that God created an imperfect creation and that God was imperfect. And we know that God is not imperfect. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Total light, no corruption in God. Ultimately trustworthy. And it's when we see that God is ultimately trustworthy out of seeing His mercy that the Spirit reaches out from a clenched fist to an open hand. A state of selflessness and trust in what is only revealed is ultimately trustworthy, which is this quality, this ultimate negative and positive in the being of God's love. And so our faith is born or is brought forth as an open hand and boasting is excluded by the law of faith or self-glory or self-worship. Pride is broken. Our heart is broken. We're humbled before God and the spirit of God enters into us, which is the result of his favor. He comes to dwell in us and our spirit no longer can close like our hand can no longer close as the other hand comes to rest against it as a symbol of two hands together in prayer. Now, in this passage of Scripture, in Timothy, we see in verse 5 that it says, now the end of the commandment is charity, or that is love, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith on faith, or faith that is not counterfeit. So it is possible This is, he's saying here that the commandments that were given in the Old Testament, which John also emphasizes, for he says in 1 John, I write an old commandment unto you, but again, I write a new commandment. And he emphasizes that the old commandment is still there, but it is in a greater fullness. And the ultimate purpose of that commandment, as it says here now, the end of the commandment, is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience before God, first of all. And when we see the greatness of God's mercy, we then see the greatness of his love. And our spirit reaches out and the spirit of God comes and we're born again. For the spirit of God dwells with our spirit. And it says, That this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, and that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And that what is born of God is our faith. And this is how it happens, out of the fear of God. There comes a genuine belief that can reach out in a selfless state of trust, out of great humility and a deep circumcision in the heart, which has a strong all happens. It's the belief in who God is. That he is a God of such ultimate trustworthiness. Because his love has this integrity. Or this holiness. And has such great mercy. And grace. But it's possible for faith to be counterfeit. And there are many people... They put faith in their own faith. And they they have these teachings. Well, if you just believe hard enough, or if you claim this, or if you believe this, and they think that somehow they can psych themselves up into believing. But we know that faith is not built up by some mental gymnastics or gritting of one's teeth out of one's own self-sufficiency. Genuine faith comes out of pure heart with a good conscience towards God the result is that there is confession and then possession so it's belief that which is really moral persuasion that results in action first in confession and as a result of confession in activities that bring possession we really do live the life out and we decide to get water baptized and to endure the persecution as a result or whatever our circumstances might be but there are many teachers that have swerved on to vain jangling and they emphasize a prosperity teaching that somehow godliness is equated with material prosperity but they forget that the word of God says in James that God has chosen the poor as those that are rich in heirs of the kingdom. Now, Elijah was very rich spiritually, but materially he didn't have a lot. But he had such a close and rich relationship with God that God would provide his needs supernaturally. And he would cause him to do miracles and bring healing to people. That is true spiritual riches. It does not mean that God does not bless people with wealth that can be entrusted with that wealth to use it in a way that brings forth the kingdom of God and does not take their lives into a direction of entanglement and greater and greater busyness that takes them away from God. The closer one comes to God, the closer one Experiences God because they draw nigh to Him out of intimacy that they experience with God through this relationship I'm describing through a life of prayer, through waiting on God, through spending time in the Word and seeking Him. The things in the world lose their attraction, they become foreign and distant. I know that's my own experience. I remember it first happening in Bible school and I said to myself, wow, as I was looking out the window, those things don't mean anything to me anymore. They seem boring compared to this subjective intimacy I'm experiencing of Christ dwelling in me and having fellowship with God. Oh, I was happy. I felt free that those things no longer meant anything and I didn't need to have my time taken up with things that didn't count and didn't have meaning and purpose and left one empty inside. So the main intent of the law was charity out of a pure heart and of faith. And God, when he gave the Ten Commandments, that was his intent. His intent was that the law would be two things. The first was to bring people into a closer love relationship with him. He emphasized many times before giving the Ten Commandments, Two things, to fear God and to love God with all one's heart. But the trap that happens to people when their hearts become hard through being swerved or turned aside from the truth by getting their focus on the gift rather than the giver and on using outward performance to justify the things that they're wanting to hold on to, that they think fulfillment is in, if they only knew the relationship they could experience like Enoch did, who walked with God and was translated. And Elijah and others and King David, who had deep, intimate fellowship with God, they were born of the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God dwelt with their spirit. Unlike in the New Testament, where there's the indwelling. They nevertheless knew the Lord, for it says, before Christ died, Christ said to them, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. So in the dwelling with their spirit and soul, by the cleansing of the flesh through animal sacrifices and acknowledgement of God's forgiveness, they knew God by his dwelling with them. And their spirit also was held and their soul in that state that excludes boasting or self-worship and self-glory. They were brought forth of the spirit. But they and many of them got their eyes on the law and that became an idol. It became a way of performance that allowed them to justify a comfort zone of a certain way of life without entering in to intimate relationship with God as God intended. Yes, the second intention of the Ten Commandments is mentioned here. that The law was made for those that are lawless. That was the other purpose of the law, to hold the nation together in righteousness and to hold in check lawlessness in order to preserve a righteous and godly lineage that would continue on. I'm not going to go through all of what I read there. Paul says in verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who is before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtain mercy. Here we have this word mercy again. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. There are those that have a genuine fear of God in the sense of knowing that he is holy, that he's trustworthy, and even recognizing that he is merciful. And I'm sure Paul did even before he found Christ. But he was veiled by the teachings of those that had become hardened into mere performance in their relationship with God and had lost sight of the fellowship and the intimacy that others like Moses and Joshua and Caleb and many others and those that prophesied in the camp of Moses that had such a close relationship with God that they were filled with praise and the Holy Spirit came on them and they prophesied and others, Enoch, all of these. They lost sight of that. And so there was these teachings of Paul and so Paul was veiled. But the word of God says, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And it's speaking about the veil that was on the children of Israel in their focus upon the law, which was basically a focus on their own righteousness and self-sufficiency before God. Not recognizing and recognizing God is their life source and that it was through him that they were to fulfill those things that were pleasing to God, out of loving God, not out of loving to do things that were merely performance like Cain and think that God would accept that. That happens when there's a hardness of heart because there's a withdrawing from God because of offense, because of the curse. And no doubt there was offense in many because of the holiness of God that was manifested in judgment in the camp of Israel. God broke out his fire and devoured many of them in their rebellion. And no doubt that caused an alienation. So many of them looked at God as an enigma, just like Cain did. And so they began to have a misconception of God as a holy God that was controlling with the, and lost sight of the goodness behind the holiness of God. But the word of God says that we're to worship him and give thanks in our worship at the remembrance of his holiness. That's one of the many verses throughout the Psalms. Oh, we are to delight in the holiness of God, for it is out of the holiness of God that there is wholeness and that God's wholeness is revealed. And it is out of the wholeness of God that the beauty of God is revealed. And the beauty of God is far greater than the beauty of his creation. And yet when we look at the beauty of his creation, it is so beautiful. Those things that have not been distorted by the fall and the rebellion and the consequences of sin. We need to delight in the holiness of God so that we come to the place of great awe and humility and are not presumptuous to be filled with our own initiations of even uttering things before God in our prayer time. We learn to curb our initiations by waiting on God, by the sabbath which is emphasized in the new testament in the old testament the lord said keep my sabbath so that you would know that it is me that sanctifies you by holding back our own self-initiations which is what the essence of keeping the sabbath is then we come to the place of recognizing a relationship with god so that he can allow himself to move through us with his presence, and we can enter into relationship with him and out of that fulfill righteousness, including the Ten Commandments. In this passage of scripture, Paul, the apostle, obtained mercy because he was doing this in ignorance. Though he was veiled, he had a heart for God and God brought him to the place. Because of his passion for truth. Where he found the reality of relationship with God. And had that divine encounter where he obtained mercy. Also, so that he would be an example to many others of long-suffering. Of how we should live as believers. And Paul's accounts in the epistles and so on certainly reveal the way we should live. Enduring All things for Christ's sake. Long-suffering is what he emphasizes, that he was, that was God's grace, was to show grace to many others through him, that they would be encouraged to go in the direction of greater and greater grace in the way to live our life, as Paul was such an example. And then he says, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then, so he's worshiping God. He's recognizing that only God is wise. That only he is worthy. Only he is immortal. And then we see in the last part, there's a charge again given to Timothy. And it says in verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Timothy received prophecies in the laying on of hands that he would remember those prophecies of encouragement and of affirmation that were affirming what God had called him to do that when the enemy would lie to him and discourage him and come against him with opposition he would be strong and remember his commissioning of God that he had authority that God was backing him up so he's commanded here to holding faith in a good conscience. Again, we see the conscience is emphasized. Now, what is conscience? conscience is that which is always aligned towards what is good. What is constructive on the life and meaning and fulfillment and purpose. And everyone, including the unsaved, innately know and have a compass of their conscience, which causes them to innately know what is good, what is unto life from what is destructive and is the contrary. It can be seared through false teaching that will justify terrible acts. We see today people in the name of believing in one God committing terrible acts Terrible atrocities, Christians, in Mosul, on YouTube video, can seen with their can be seen with their heads cut off, on long fences that go around the city, one after another, heads on the posts of these pet, these fences. Terrible atrocities. Absolutely evil. And then he emphasizes here that there are those that have put away a good conscience. They've made their faith shipwreck because they've wanted to justify something that would either bring pride and self-glory to them or would allow them to justify their immorality and loves for the world. And it says, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They were misrepresenting the glory of God. So that when the world was looking at them, they were saying, if that's what Christians are, I don't want anything to do with them. That is blaspheming God. And it says in the word of God, in the last days, in the book of Revelations, the Lord says and emphasizes to the church, Just before his coming, when he's about to come back to the earth to take heed that you do not walk naked, lest they see your shame and blaspheme the name of the Lord. I could take a rough idea of where it is in Revelations and go there right now just quickly in closing on that verse. I believe if I got it right probably be around here i'm just guessing at it and uh, it says this in verse 15 of revelation 16 behold i come as a thief blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they she see his shame that's the warning to the body of christ that we be those that are be are prepared that are watching and keeping our garments walking in a life that is godly that is holy that are shining as lights to this world because we live a life that is godly and holy so that is what the lord is saying today from the word of god from 1st timothy chapter 1 that we can know his mercy and his grace out of the fear of God, that brings us into a place of intimacy with God so that we conquer the roots of division and of evil in our midst that would cause us to misrepresent the glory of God and be judged for eternity, possibly even losing our salvation. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to the message.